in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is your good friend and my good friend, Chad Robinson, right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How you doing, Chad? I'm great this evening. All right. And joining us from Spokane, Washington, our other host, Brian Fry. How are you doing, Brian? Good evening, everybody. We're doing well. All right. This is a kind of an impromptu show. So uh, I think Chad, Chad hopped in there with about an hour's last notice. So see if you can tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I may just be making it all up. So let's get to, let's just break the ice a little bit. What's your favorite movie from your childhood, Brian? I'm just going to go off the cusp on this one and say Mighty Ducks. Okay. That's I'm a, thinking that's, it might be Mighty Ducks. Yeah, that's, that's a, a fun, good one. Either, either that or Ninja Turtles. You know, one of those two. Okay. Yeah. That one continues to come up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, what about you? What was your favorite movie from your childhood? I think I have to go with Gremlins. I watch it every December because of my childhood memories i saw it early and i was one of the kids that wasn't traumatized by it i loved it <laughs> oh wow okay yeah i didn't know that uh you had uh, absorbed it uh so soon uh, i figured the gremlins themselves might have been a wee bit how young were you seven eight maybe okay okay so yeah th- this is a bit later then that makes sense yeah uh i had a couple of favorites i mean um batman probably was my first Love and first favorite, so it definitely kept me happy for a long time, although it did get Star Wars pretty early, and I liked that one, too. So the 1989 Batman with Michael Keaton. I think I probably, I mean, you know, Star Wars is, I feel like I saw all these movies in ballpark the same time. Yeah. Like, if you want to go for, like, childhood, childhood, let's say under 10 years old childhood, sure. Uh, maybe Dunstan checks in. Oh, it's actually a wow. pretty good movie. I, I I I like that one. I don't know. I haven't gone back to it since like, I was a kid. But I remember I probably drove my parents insane with that one, like to the point where I still remember it today. Yeah. Uh, now, Chad, uh, what's the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was actually a Valentine's Day movie. It was called Cupid. It is a horror movie in the style of Pumpkinhead or not quite as ridiculous as Thanksgiving, but it's obviously a B movie. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah, Thanksgiving is ridiculous. Thanksgiving. Brian, what about you, man? Uh my last movie was Bad Boys for Life. Oh, how's that? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I love those movies. Uh, as we've mentioned before on the show, the first Bad Boys was my first R-rated movie. So uh, as, as long as they keep cranking these out, I will continue to let them take my money. It's a good duo. <laughs> I myself just got done watching like right before the podcast. So this is this is fresh. Is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh wow! So you had to spend. Oh, so you had like a lot of time. 
Well, I've been watching it over uh, multiple sittings because when you have a baby, uh, you don't get a three-hour block of time. So no, uh, we watched. So you've that. been watching it over the last three months. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So we con- congratulations. We finally got to the end. Not what I was thinking it was going to be, but I'll say no more. So no spoilers. So uh, uh, it was an interesting one, and I gotta say, it's probably my favorite Tarantino movie now. So. Wow. Okay. High praise. Um, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan at the same time, so moderate praise. <laughs> uh, now, as we move forward, what movie are we going to do this week, Brian? Uh, we are doing Gattaca, sci-fi dystopian world. All right. It's the future you almost want, maybe, but we'll talk more about that here in a second. This movie comes out in 1997. It grosses $12.5 million. It comes in at 119th in the box office. That's that's pretty sad. That's uh, I wish it were higher. Uh, it comes in behind Marvin's Room and ahead of Love Jones. Uh, the number one movie that year was Men in Black, and IMDb gives Gattaca a 7.8. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes are more generous and like it at and give it an 83%. The audience score of Rotten Tomatoes is even higher at 87%. Uh, it is Academy Award nominated for Best Art Direction, and it is a Golden Globe uh, Award for Best Original Score. So, a little bit of hardware, even though it didn't get a lot of popular um, attention, I should say. Maybe not marketed properly. Now, Brian, why don't you start us off? Had you seen this one before? What was your background with it? Um, I definitely saw this before. It's been years. Uh, I remembered s- sort of the basic premise. But uh, this is one of those movies that I just tend to like. Uh, Christian Bale's Equilibrium was another kind of dystopian, science fiction-y type movie, uh, as was Ultraviolet. The other movie I was trying to think of was Aeon Flux. Anyway, yes, this was my type of movie. I'll typically watch all of these uh, just whenever they come out, and I'm a big fan. Uh, What was it like returning to it now? Is it holding up well? I mean, there's some rough cuts on some of the technology, but yeah, I think overall it's a fairly simplistic movie. There's not a lot of moving pieces to it, which is what I think really makes it a cool movie. Um, so yeah, I, I think they kept this as like a very um, less is more with what they really did. Okay. Now, Chad, what about you? What was your background with this movie? I'd never seen it, and I actually keep confusing it for a movie that is wildly different uh i can't even think of the title i can't find it uh i can picture the the girl alien very specifically red hair white suspenders just like a very element yes thank you for whatever reason i keep confusing these two movies and they are not even remotely related that's a strange thing to cross wires on yes that is (laughs) Like, I could almost see you confi- uh, confusing, like, Blade Runner or something more for uh, for a fifth element just based on, you know, flying cars and a little bit more action-y. Like, I feel like those worlds were kind of modeled close to one another when they made Fifth Element. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chad, what was your take on it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I had a good time. I enjoyed it a lot. Sci-fi is usually a weak point of mine. I don't tend to like it very much but uh this movie broke the mold for me okay okay i, I always find it so funny you're, you're such a star wars fan but you say i don't like sci-fi and that i, I always have my head scratching going like what yeah, star wars is science fantasy 
It's it's not science fiction. Okay, okay. Uh, as for me, I saw this one probably... I was out of college at this point, so probably in the late 2000s, early 10s, Mary and I popped it in, and uh, it had been recommended to us several times. And for whatever reason, again, the marketing wasn't there at the time. I just didn't know about it. And then I had had enough my friends go to bat for Fry being one of them who spoke highly of it, actually. And we got to it, and... Blew my mind. I loved it. It was so wonderful. Loved the style of it. I had so much fun with it. It, it was thought provoking and just I really enjoyed it. And uh, I purchased it. I uh, got a great deal on a used copy. I remember I got it for five dollars. So uh, I had this one in my library when this one got selected, and I was excited to return to it. And it does not disappoint at all. I think it's aging really well. Uh, and I think that this is the kind of movie that you know you'll see on science fiction countdowns. And I expect that it'll rise over time. I think its legacy is only going to get better. Yeah, when I was looking it up, it kept coming up on the list that the grabbing headline was something to the extent of best science fiction movies you've never seen or you've never heard of. So maybe this will get more people to watch it. I hope so. Like I said, uh, 119th in the uh, box office coming in behind Marvin's Room doesn't feel like it got its dues <laughs> you know these are this is the kind of movie this this pegs in right at what i really enjoy i'm not saying that a movie has to be really under the radar for me to enjoy it but i it's stuff like this that when i find them i just really enjoy sharing them with other people because there are tons of movies out there that go wildly or wildly underappreciated. And this is totally one of them. Like there's nothing really wrong with this film to have it that low on the totem pole. And with the cast and how well they play the characters, it's, it's, it's a shame. This isn't, this isn't more popular than it is. And maybe it's just because I know a lot of architects and this movie is very aesthetically pleasing, but I get, like I said, it it's, comes highly recommended, and it, like to Chad said, it, it comes up a lot, you know, on countdowns and stuff when you're looking up best science fictions of all time. So, uh, it, it deserves it. So we'll we'll get into it now. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen Gattaca, go watch it. Do yourself a favor, watch it, come back, and enjoy the rest of this podcast. We'll be back after this. Hello, it's your very popular and beloved president, Donald J. Trump. That's right. I won the election fair and square unanimously. I carried all 672 electoral votes. It's true, believe me. My favorite podcast is the Retro Movie Roundtable. And while it's not as popular as I am, we can fix that. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It doesn't really matter. As long as it's not CNN. Give the show a rating and review. I'm doing such a tremendous job as president, I don't need your feedback. But the Retro Movie Roundtable does. It helps promote the show. It lets them know how they can make the podcast better. I gave them five beautiful golden stars. Give them a like on Facebook if you want. Also, email them at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. I made this country great again, and with your help, we can make movies great again with the Retro Movie Roundtable. Thank you. This message was endorsed by President Donald Trump. As we mentioned before, there will be spoilers that lie ahead, so this is your final warning. Now, for those who haven't seen Gattaca since 1997, Brian, do you want to refresh people's memory? So Gattaca is set in the not-too-distant future where eugenics has become the preferred way to conceive. 
Your whole life, from your schooling to your career choices, are based on your genetic information. Discrimination is illegal, yet it is widespread and rampant, and those naturally born are considered invalids. Vincent Freeman is an invalid. Upon his birth, his parents are informed that because of the likelihood of heart condition and other genetic factors, his lifespan would only be 30.2 years. Vincent's parents treat him as an invalid for much of his life and consider uh, and conceive another child, Anton, through eugenics. Vincent dreams of a career in space but is prevented from the program due to his invalid status. He begins work uh, doing menial tasks and labor jobs in the Gattaca facility until he is set up with Jerome Morrow. Jerome is a former star athlete who became paralyzed after a suicide attempt. The contract set up between the two is such that Vincent will assume Jerome's life and live as him in order to achieve a job at Gattaca. This requires Jerome to supply him with urine, skin, saliva, and hair samples in order for him to pass the genetic tests. Vincent then assumes Jerome's life entirely and goes to work at Gattaca, where he quickly excels. All is going according to plan when an unexpected murder leads to a deep, clean, quote, of Gattaca's facility turning up some of Vincent's real DNA. The lead investigator of the case is none other than Vincent's brother, Anton. Anton is slow to damn Vincent and does not give over the fact that it's his brother silently pursuing him. As the launch window grows closer, suspense build as the police, Anton, and a certain young lady, Irene, all become more deeply entwined. Everything culminates with Aunt Anton and Vincent playing their old game of chicken and Vincent prevailing, Vincent and Irene falling for one another to the point where she covers for his fake identity, and Vincent getting to space. Well done, well done. And one of the things that I think any dystopian future has to do is establish the rules of where you are and kind of give you the setting for what this new world is and why it's not all it cracked up to be. Now, a lot of the movies will hit you up with this either through text early on, exposition early on, but I thought this movie unfolded very, very nicely. Uh, Chad, you were new to this. What was your way of experiencing and discovering the world of Gattaca? I mean, you you kind of hit it as they, they start stressing these eugenically chosen offspring and the blood tests that you show just to get into the buildings the way the invalids are treated uh, the jobs they're assigned and just the slow burn of almost hopelessness for the life that Vincent's supposed to lead uh, talking about how he, he can't go to space his father saying, hey, I, I wish we hadn't done this. I wish we hadn't done a natural birth. Just kind of the depression of it all. Well, I think this really feeds into to Jude Law's character, too, because you almost see the psychosis of the upper echelon, too, where you see, you know, he has quotes like, Jerome Morrow was never meant to be second on the podium. You know, they they get this idea that, you know, they're they're better than everyone. They're perfectly conceived, but there's still going to be differences in, you know, people's abilities. And you see it between uh, uh, Vincent and Anton. And then you see it uh, again with, with Jerome and his own reason for you know trying to commit suicide. Yeah. Irene's heart condition. Exactly. So you all, there's like a, there's a level of despair, even with the, the quote perfectly created. No sect. Yeah. There's a burden of needing to be perfect for sure. 
I just thought that they did such a good job of telling the story. You know, they give you enough background. They move very quickly through it. But, I mean, they give you really good clips to, to establish the world. You see the birthing center process, and you see the difference in the raising and how parents would view an engineered child versus a natural-born child. And you see that discrimination growing up with it. And Chad's right. I mean, you instantly feel compassion and just because your main character is being walked all over and schools don't want to take them. Doctors say you're going to die in your early 30s. And it's almost like you're in a whole other cast. Well, I think they were succinct without being trite. Um, a lot of movies, when they have a lot of material to, to push into your brain before you know for the setup of a world... I feel like they lead you through this. They spent about 20 minutes on Vincent's life pre-Gattaca. And I, I don't feel like they were leading you around showing you the world. I felt like I was immersed in the story to begin with. They fed me all the information quickly but not rushed. And it leads you into the movie you know, really caring about your characters. You're right. I didn't think they felt like like they hit you over the head with the world. They immersed you in the characters, like you were saying, and that was that was the strength of it to me. You're picking up on the perception of what's going on. For instance, race and sexism are not really the definers anymore. You see, like you have a black man working at the laboratories in a very well-paid position when Irene and and uh, Vincent go out to a nice, nice high-end restaurant. You look around; there are people of all races and colors around. And it's one of those things where you realize this future equality seems like it's it's actually there in terms of race and sex. But unfortunately, uh, you know, it's turned into this order where people will test you to make sure that you are the greatest potential. Everything's about potential in society. And that's just one of those interesting things. It's not an oppressive government doing it because most dystopian futures are very much like government cautionary kinds of things. This is uh, illegal, as you pointed out in your pod summary. It's just, this is the way society behaves. I want the best of the best. Yeah, you, you can't really blame them when it's framed that way. If you've got the capability of screening theoretically for the best people, it's almost natural that these invalids are going to be excluded. But yeah, I, I could see, I, I like the point that it was illegal, but it still happens and everyone's just accepting of it. I mean, this technology is inherently a compelling thing that, you know, you, you can eradicate, like, vision impairment. You don't have to have, you know, mental disabilities anymore. You can rule out, I mean, even things like hair loss and stuff like that. I mean, you can really, it's, that's a wonderful future where a lot of diseases and heartache and pain and, you know, can, can seemingly be prevented through genetics. But there's the dark side of it where how people treat you is there. And then to some degree, your future becomes predetermined because of that desire for potential and that the analytics, everything's by the numbers. Willpower is something that's intangible. And this movie is about an individual and his willpower to overcome adversity. There are also a lot of good quotes in this movie. And I, I hope I don't take anybody's for later on, but, uh, just based on what you just said, one of the, the really potent lines of this was there is no gene for fate. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, when society becomes obsessed with genetic potential, it ruins, uh, it ruins a previously good techno technological advance. And that's just 
a wonderful thing that dystopian movies usually do. And uh, like I said, this one isn't about like the robots have risen up and they've taken over. Like we created this gene or this germ for germ warfare and it got carried away and now the population's mm. eradicated. It doesn't feel like a dystopia where everything's terrible or there's this massive um, like there's the haves and the have nots like in a movie like Elysium or something like that. I mean, it the the general environment that they've portrayed here is that this world looks like you know it's cleaned up the, there's no poverty really shown and it seems like things are functioning very well at least at from the scope of this movie and that's what i meant by it's almost a future that you would want it's just that prejudice is uh wildly unfair uh to me it was unsettling honestly it it felt so sterile compared to everything around me. Even the mannerisms of all the characters in this movie, they were stiff, they were stodgy, there wasn't... It was almost like they were drained of common emotion. So it it was it was not the same future that you're describing where, like, eh, this, this might be nice. It It unnerved me through the majority of the movie. Interesting. And I think some of that could come into the way it was shot to some degree, too. Uh, one of the things that really made me feel for the character early on as we're talking about this thing of setting things up, Vincent's dad does not want him to take his first name. His mother's about to name him Anton, which is his father's name. And he says, no, 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 Vincent Anton. And then his brother from two years later gets his father's name. So it even shows you that even within his own house, he was never viewed the same as his brother. And... Uh, to Chad's point, you really feel for him. Yeah, that was tough to watch, and I can't imagine being the kid that's, you know, the failure or the mistake, as his parents basically called him. Uh, the agony of that and just everything being hoisted on his brother, and especially with Vincent's condition as well, with his heart, they were overprotective. They did go a little heavy-handed, though, with the names. I don't know if you guys caught on to this, but, like, well, first of all, his name was Vincent Freeman, but uh, Vincent in Latin means he shall conquer. That's pretty subtle. I didn't catch that, and I don't speak Latin, so uh, that's, that's fun. I like that. Well, in Eugene, it means well-born, but it, in Greek, but eugenic. So that would be the middle name for Jerome's character that you're referring to on that one. So like, you know, because yeah. he said, don't call me Jerome, call me by my middle name. Okay. Yeah, call me Eugene. So they went a little heavy handed with did, the names, but did, I thought did, that was Did fun. you feel like these were heavy handed, Brian? I, I thought, I don't, I just took them as names at the time, but uh, I actually kind of like the second meaning that Chad uncovered for us. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Oh, they definitely, I mean, director Joseph was uh, Mingalev. That was a reference. Uh, Cassini was a reference to, I, I think it's one of, uh, uh, it's a celestial body. I can't remember which, so I'm not going to be wrong on a podcast forever, but it's some <laughs> form of celestial body. Uh, so that was Irene's last name. Interesting. Um, now, one of the things that I thought was compelling was, though, Vincent's character refused to accept this at face value he chose to deceive and to gain this other identity as they called it a borrowed ladder and this is one of the things i love most about this character is 
his defiance and his willpower to push for what it is he wants. I, I, it's an admirable trait when you're, uh, you can call it stubborn if you want to, you can call it driven, uh, you can call it obsessed if you want to, but he had a dream and he was going to follow it to the fullest. And because of that passion he had to go to space, he was the right and best man for the job, despite his genetic shortcomings. And I just, I loved that part of the story and the amount of sacrifice that he had to give up in his life to pursue it, but it was worth it to him. Yeah, that scene of him becoming taller, it that's a real-world surgery right now. You read about, I first read about that surgery as far as breaking your legs and extending the bones when there was a lady that was too short to be a flight attendant, and sh her dream was to be a flight attendant, so she had that surgery, and elongated her legs so she'd be able to reach the carry-ons. So you can cut your shins in half and insert plates or rods to be like two inches taller? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an agonizing process that takes months and months to heal, but yeah, it's it's a real thing right now. Next time you see me, I'm about to be two inches taller. <laughs> You'll finally be taller than me. Yes! And I'll be still shorter than Brian. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's why this world is so uh, unsettling to me. If if we're going by genetic imperfections, I can be the poster child here. But that makes you but, feel yeah. for it that much more. I mean, and I think this appeals to any outcast or anybody who wasn't Mr. Popular or like, you know, like whenever somebody walks in the room and says, oh, you're that you're that six foot two, you know, classic good looks. You, you know, you're going to be a politician or a CEO. You're going to go far kind of thing. Uh, if you got, if you're ever that kid that got picked last for kickball or whatever, this movie has got to appeal to a big, broad audience because, I mean, there's a lot of people who have that defect, and so you're going to resonate with this character, unless you're Tom Brady, in which case, well, good for you, Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, anything else on the uh, on the kind of the story that particularly resonated with you? No, it's it's just a very interesting piece and. I can't really hammer the point hard enough that I feel like this is one of those movies you can see and feel like it's familiar, but by and large, it's a very one of a kind film. And, and I think that's another part of it that I really enjoy is when I watch this movie, I don't feel like I'm watching other movies. That's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, it is a dystopian movie, but it doesn't feel... Again, most dystopian movies, whether it be like 1984 or Brazil, Blade Runner, I mean, most of them are just like, whoa, this whole world sucks. Where did we go wrong? And like I said, I mean, maybe Chad felt a little bit differently, but to me, it was just kind of like, a, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with the technology that they had. It's just how people have now started to use it and implement it and... It's a different thing than usual, so it's one of those kind of things. So, uh, you know, it raises moral questions for, is this a good thing? Can people handle it? And maybe maybe they can't, which is a cautionary tale, which is definitely an underpinning message of any dystopian movie. Yeah. I did like the investigation part of this movie because it's through the investigation you see the meticulous nature and how much they care about genes. And when they were concerned that a suspect in there didn't belong there... It was this person shouldn't be here in this part of the world and therefore they must be the criminal and we've got to look for this in, invalid. And I thought that that did a great job of reinforcing and unfolding the world. Again, like you said, in the early part of the movie, 
it unfolds through the characters, but the rest of this world building does a really great job of unfolding through the investigation. And when the world evolves so naturally, that's just really good writing, I think, and storytelling. Um, sure. Yeah. Brian, do you want to give Brian? Do you want to give us a cast rundown? Yeah, I'm going to give kind of an abridged one here and just kind of hit the uh, really important people because this is not a movie that has an extremely deep named cast. Um, so it starts off with Ethan Hawke as Vincent and Jerome, Alma Thurman as Irene, Gore Vidal as du- uh, director Yosef. We got Xander Berkeley as Lamar, Jane Brooke as Marie. Elias Cotes as Antonio. Blair Underwood actually plays the geneticist. I'm going to bring that back up later. That's the reason I'm going to uh, mention that one. So Jude Law as Jerome. Alan Arkin as Detective Hugo. And uh, Lauren Dean as Anton. Alan Arkin is billed shockingly low in this. Look at Jude Law. I mean, I know this was his first big role, but good grief. I was going to say, it's his first movie. He was a newcomer. It, it was it was in credit order, and that's always annoying. Oh, okay. Then, see, so yeah, I actually didn't. Because like you said, it's such a tight cast, I hadn't actually fully put piece together that, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> like they like to do sometimes. Other fun person whose first movie, Maya Rudolph, was a delivery nurse. Yep. Mm. I missed that one. Yeah, I uh, I actually almost doubted it was her at first, but then I later uh, I, uh, I I looked it up and it was her. So Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke might have uh, kindled some sparks here. They uh, became a couple during the filming of this movie, and so if you felt like they had good romantic chemistry, it's because they had it in real life. They got married a year later in 1998, and they had two children. They divorced in 2005, but you might recognize one of their children from Stranger Things. Robin from Stranger Things is the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. So she's a Gattaca kid. (laughs) Genetically engineered from start. So if you're genetically engineered, you can get a job at Scoops Ahoy. (laughs) Actually, I'll toss out out, uh, Ernest uh, Borgnine in here, too, as Caesar. Oh, I loved him in this, yeah. Yeah. Another heavy-handed name. Tony Shalhoub is also in his German. There, there are a couple sneaky pieces in here, but they're not like Tony Shalhoub, I think had like a grand total of one minute of screen time. It was important though. He was the creepy doctor guy who, you know, made the borrowed ladder exchange happen. Yeah. Now Johnny Depp actually turns down the role of Jerome. Can you picture Johnny Depp doing this? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm wondering if I'd feel better about it at the time. Because, like, right now I'm thinking of things like transcendence and being like, eh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that dystopian movie wasn't as good as this dystopian movie. But I'm, I'm thinking at the time, like you said, I think if you had told me Johnny Depp was going to do this other than this other new British guy, I might be like, yeah, sure, let's bring Johnny Depp in here. But, uh, you know, uh, after seeing the actual results, I would not want to make that swap by any means because I, I thought Jude Law was very good in this. If I recall, you're not a Jude Law fan, though. Is that right, Chad? No, I I like Jude Law. I okay. like him just fine. And actually, I I can't picture Johnny Depp in this role. I, I don't know what movie he would be coming off of. I know the movie he turned this down for was not great. Um, I can't remember the name, but 
yeah, he's, if we're going with genetic perfection, I don't know, yeah, 21 Jump Street or whatever that he was on before, uh, teen heartthrob, but I just don't picture Johnny Depp as the face of genetic perfection. So you don't see him in a wheelchair, being all drunk, being out of rum and saying, why is the rum gone? Yeah. Because he really needs another one of those parts. <laughs> and he'll get it, because everyone likes money. They do. They do. Uh, which is the whole reason Jerome sells his identity off in the first place, so that he can continue to live a plushy lifestyle while uh, Ethan Hawke goes out and earns money for him. So uh, it worked out for him, too, for the most part. Uh, the problem is you have to live such an isolated life then. This would have been this would have been a year before Fear and Loathing. Uh, he did two movies this year. It was Donnie Brasco and The Brave. I think it was The Brave. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember reading this as well. Yeah, he turned it down to do The Brave. Oh well, it worked out great for Jude Law. It's 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 a career builder for sure. So, any other casting comments? I couldn't find anything else other than Johnny Depp. It really seems like they nailed down their cast early and got everyone signed on that they wanted. It's a small cast, so once you make a couple of decisions, it's pretty well set. Yeah, for me, I felt they got the casting pretty much perfect. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot uh, I, I had an issue with in terms of the casting of this, if anything, really. This is one of those movies that I feel like the movie portrays how uniform, how crisp they made it. Like, I feel like they were just... For a movie that's all about distinguishing the flaws between one type of person and another, there isn't very many flaws really inherent with the film. Oh, I agree. It's it's a uh, it's polished for sure, and the cast is great, and uh, you know the direction is great too. And it's uh, as we shifted into kind of talking about the film, Andrew Nichol. This is his directorial debut, which is really impressive because he wrote and directed this. What a great start for his filmmaking career. I don't think he ever quite lives up to it again, but this is this is a really impressive start. Yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I, I I would say that I I'm I probably am on an island for this, but I did enjoy Lord of War and in uh, time. Lord of War was the one that stuck out to me as it seems like this was the other good effort. The host was not a good effort. Don't confuse that with no. the really good Korean one. <laughs> this is the American host, and no, not as good. This is the post-Twilight Stephanie Meyer host. Yes, yes, correct. Which, uh, which was a big springboard for Saoirse Ronan. I don't even know who that is, so keep working, Saoirse <laughs> You should, would know her from Hannah, uh, Lady Bird, and Them Lovely Bones. That's uh, Nope. Hannah was a phenomenal movie. Chad, you should definitely watch Hannah. Yeah. I am 0 for 3 uh, on The those. Book Thief. The Book Thief. She's really good in that, too. 0 for 4. <laughs> <laughs> you should meet this. Uh, you should be introduced to this uh, talented Irish actress then at some point. So. All right. I will put Hannah on my list then. I think that's a, place, that's a good place to start. I think you'll like that. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, to some degree, yeah, he never recaptures the magic to me in time. Looks interesting. I've not seen that one. You mentioned you had seen that one, Fry. Yeah, yeah. In time, uh, I think it put a lot of people off because of Justin Timberlake's being the main character. But if you've ever seen really any of the movies he's acted in, 
he is not a bad actor by any measure. And if you can, you know, set in sync aside, I think you'd really enjoy uh, most of the movies he's in. I think he's a very talented actor. In fact, I wish he would focus more on acting because he's he's quite a good actor. Was that the movie where they had the number of minutes on their wrist and they had to kind of deposit it to do different things? That is correct. Oh, that was that was unfortunate. That's not Justin Timberlake's fault, to your point, but that was an unfortunate. Oh, I like that movie. I thought yeah. it was a an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting thing. If you take it from the standpoint that. Every beer you drink, every cup of coffee you have, every cigarette you smoke, you know, every extreme sport that you have to get medically, you know, fixed for, whatever you do actually does take time off your life. It's just a very um, visible metaphor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it had potential. It just fell flat for me. I think maybe we're kind of agreeing. This is the best of, at least of what we've seen, this is the best from uh, Andrew Nichol. Oh, yeah. Indeed. It was voted the most accurate science fiction ever made by the NASA, by a group of NASA scientists. So they got that going for them. That's only because they're lying about alien. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I thought it was interesting. I was watching some of these previews and stuff like that. Danny DeVito started popping up and talking about it. I was like, why is Danny DeVito here? Did I miss him? Where, where was he in this? And uh, he was he was one of the producers of the movie. So that was unexpected. Uh you know, Danny DeVito's got such a great narrating voice. I, I almost wanted to stick him in there as the uh, narrator at the beginning. <laughs> that would have been so distracting for me. It's like <laughs> we're talking about genetic perfection narrated by Danny DeVito. I, I, I don't know. I love LA Confidential so much. So now I want him to narrate more things. <laughs> keep it, keep it on the QT and very hush hush. Interesting enough, as they were making this film, it was shot under the title The Eighth Day, which I think is actually a better title. And, you know, it's a reference to the you know, biblical creation story, which states the earth was created in six days and on the seventh day God rested. So this would be the next day where man kind of takes over what has already been made. And, uh, you know, you're kind of playing God by engineering the children and the next generation. So I, I really wish they had been able to stick with that title. But by the time it was released in the fall of 97, a Belgium film had already been released in the U.S. under the same title of Eighth Day. So somebody beat them to it. And uh, as a result, they retitled it Gattaca. And if you're wondering where Gattaca kind of comes from, Gattaca, a G, the A, the T, and the C are four letters of shorthand that are, if you were to write out anybody's genetic breakdown, you're all going gonna to have Gs, As, Ts, and Cs. And eventually, as you, as you were flying through it, anybody's strand would eventually spell out Gattaca. So another fun wordplay thing to what some of the titles that Chad was mentioning earlier more uh referential kind of titles god i'm so shallow i didn't like go into any of this stuff like y'all are blowing my mind right now with this name stuff <laughs> dropping knowledge <laughs> uh, it's it's not a problem man um you introduced me to this movie so i wouldn't know any of these things if it wasn't for you now as far as andrew nickel goes as a director you mentioned that this is your favorite but let's talk about more specifically about his work here within gattaca what, what were you enjoying from Andrew Nichol as a director? Brian, why don't you take this one first? I like how clean cut this movie is. Uh, specifically, I've mentioned it a couple times, things that they do that is very trim. There's not a whole lot of excess to this. 
And it's a movie where, you know, hygiene and him having to, you know, scrub off dead skin and to, you know, remove loose hair and everything. I feel like the movie follows along with what Vincent is trying to do. And the movie is trying to be the best movie it can be by the end of it and following him along with this, you know, just arduous routine to reach its goal. Yeah, ex- excellent point. And to your point about the storytelling, I mean, I challenge you to find a superfluous scene in this that you could just totally cut out because it's very tight and the story flows remarkably well. Chad, uh, what any takes on Nickel as a director? I have to echo the same thing. There really wasn't a scene. We were just coming off of Highlander where one of my biggest complaints was the director lingering on just objects forever and he really could you could drag out the dialogue of what does it mean to be invalid or what does it mean to be these uh, genetically engineered and he doesn't beat you over the head with it and i appreciate that so much this movie comes in at what an hour and 46 minutes something to that extent gosh they cover a lot in that time yeah. It wouldn't shock me at all if there was no director's cut for this. Like, if he actually did show you the movie he intended to show you. <laughs> well, there are some deleted scenes, but there, it, there's not much. Like, the the birth center is a little bit longer. That's not really... It's not highly distinguishable, so he, he already exhibited a lot of discipline within that. And there's another one where Alan Arkin, uh, the detective Hugo, says later to Detective Anton that... I tested the sweat of the, you know, from the eyelash that we found in your sweat, and I found that you guys share something in common. The DNA overlaps, and you guys are family. And, you know, he's like, I should turn you in, because, you know, every step of the way, he's deterred him from making the right choice of investigating a lead, and it looks to him like it's being protective. But then he said, but I guess... That's just why you're on your track and I'm a lowly second-level detective. Even at his level of experience, he goes, I'm just a sentimentalist and I like you too much. And so they cut that scene out completely. And in fairness, they didn't seem to have a lot of chemistry going forward. It it was kind of the young guy telling older guy what to do the whole time. So to be able to say, I like you too much or I'm too much of a sentimentalist, um, that would have been an inconsistency. But again, Nickel had that ability to really trim this thing down as brian said it's just it's remarkably um, consistent and well done so uh, and that was about it there's one other deleted scene that i'm going to just hold keep in my back pocket for later there's there's not a lot to add as far as you were saying brian in terms of a director's cut certainly uh now chad you mentioned that this world made you feel a little bit uneasy at times is that right yeah as the Five foot ten on a good day, non-athletic, uh, allergies all over the place, um, guy with a, a bunch of eyesight and other issues, you know, presenting me a world where people like me are essentially purged, like that that knife, uh, when that symbol, whenever it comes up, is invalid. The knife symbol actually actually means extinction that's a real symbol and so there's a legitimate purge so yeah to some extent uh, personal hang-ups and all 
Like, eh, this is getting rid of people like me, and I, I kind of like me. <laughs> I like you too, and the I think the, that uneasiness that you have is reinforced through every aspect of this movie because again they don't want you to sit there and say like this this is great I look really forward to this it's a cautionary tale and I think Nickel does a great job with the cinematography as well a lot of the times where you see characters in this they're shown through really long shots so long that you can't see the actors faces and uh, I like this because it shows off some really great architecture but what that's also doing to the viewer is it makes those characters feel small and insignificant and they're part of a bigger movement or a societal kind of machine and uh, you know there's a lot of moving uh, aspects of the, these people moving around like ants so as um, throughout the uh, different environments uh, this is something they use whether they're swimming they'll zoom way out overhead and they'll show like these two tiny figures swimming again showing their insignificance in the whole system or as Irene and Vincent are walking in front of uh, you know these beautiful arches which actually that's a dam and uh, it's just it's it's again playing up that this is a big system and that's an uneasy feeling to have yeah, the, the shots were gorgeous, actually, though the shots I liked were kind of the opposite of what you did, but I guess it speaks to it, the cinematography and the techniques. I liked the close-ups. There were beautiful shots of the characters, uh, particularly Irene when she wakes up, or uh, Vincent as he's getting le- ready to leave and the contrast of two doors. There, there was architecture and there were great wide shots but the up close and personal were what did it for me so varying technique and well-deserved mentions in the awards Mm -hmm. no good good point and uh there's the super super detail too like they show you how dna is everywhere whether it be in the hairs like the eyelash that they suck up the blood drops from when they prick your finger and stuff like that so there's the uh there's the almost microscopic or the at least the magnified really zoomed in. So there's there's a there's another scale there that we hadn't covered as well. Brian, any th- any other thoughts on the style of this future movie that they're rendering here? Keep making these movies. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll, I'll never fail to to watch at least watch one of these, even ones that I'm not a huge fan of. And I've I've mentioned a couple that aren't great movies, but I'll still watch them. Stuff like Ultraviolet wasn't the best thing I've ever seen, but that's fine. But, you know, movies like uh, Equals or Predestination is another Ethan Hawke one, Children of Men. We had already kind of mentioned, you know, Fifth Element, The Island with Ewan McGregor. Like, I will never not watch one of these. What about... What is it? Jupiter Ascending? That looked terrible. Uh, I, I, I watched it. It was god-awful. Like, it wasn't even funny bad. It was just... I mean, it is a dumpster fire. But I so, watched it. <laughs> so, if you're listening out there, future directors, you have an audience. You can do the producer's version of this. Just make a terrible sci-fi movie on the cheap. <laughs> Giant money scheme. But Brian Fry will see it. Yeah, but see, but forever Jupiter Ascending, you have like an ex machina, and it's just oh, like, ooh, so this was freaking amazing. You know, like, oh. so I feel like we're winning. Like, on the scale, there are fewer Jupiter Ascendings than there are Gattaca, ex machina. 
I even I really enjoy Fifth Element. I mean, it's a little goofier. Love it. But it's you know it's still very much a worthy science fiction film to watch. For sure. See, I I get mixed reviews. I I loved Ex Machina. I didn't like films like Children of Men. I found it incredibly boring. Uh, same with Annihilation. I was very disappointed by Annihilation, and I like Natalie Portman a lot. It's true, he does. And that... I'll put I'll put Annihilation somewhere in the middle ground there. Um, I saw that one on purpose because uh, I have the book series by Vandermeer. One very memorable scene with a bear, but past that, <laughs> I mean, I, that's look like. There are obviously debatable points about any of these movies, and I'm sure there's probably someone out there that really reveres Jupiter Ascending, and we probably won't have that person on the show. But, um, <laughs> but they're wrong. His name is Tatum Channing. <laughs> yeah, Chan- Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. Oh, God, I just I would just do wow. that again. Ta- yeah, his Tatum, name is Tatum, Tatum Channing, comma Channing. <laughs> so still Channing mean, Tatum. You know. Oh God. <laughs> Okay, it's still Channing now you've got to leave. No, you now you've got to leave that. You were wrong twice. I was. <laughs> <laughs> you could have just wah, gone wah. with Mila Kunis. Sure, her name is Mila Kunis. Kunis Mila. I don't know. I I I, I want to know what Russell's deep dive on budget and how how much that movie grossed is now because I mean they had to have paid that cost or uh, that uh, cast just out the ear with who all is in it. Steering uh, back complete, on just <laughs> complete tangent that I'm not going to allow Russell to wrangle me on, but to my delight, <laughs> cats. <laughs> no, cats completely bombed. Twenty-seven million no on more a hundred million talk. dollar budget. <laughs> okay, going back to Gattaca, I think another really interesting <laughs> thing that Andrew Nichol does here is is his use of color, and here he has like sepia tones when they're outside and it dilutes things and giving it this very orange wash which is kind of an unnatural feeling in this world that they're in and uh, I think that kind of maybe gives you that feeling that you're talking about Chad of that sterility there are trees and stuff around but when you go with such a strong sepia it drains out the natural greens in it and where this movie does use greens are it it's a more intense green like there's a sense of danger in it so like when they're in the tunnel and they're or at the checkpoint or the alley after Vincent and Irene leave the party. Uh, there's green lights on the wall there. The seawater that they're swimming in at night, where it's disorienting, you can't see what's going on, has a very strong greenness. As Ethan Hawke is walking into the tube to board the shuttle at the end, there's this green hue that's in the tunnel as he's leaving, so it's like they're going off into space into the unknown. However, when it looks back in the other direction, it's completely pristine white, and it's the same tube. And these, it's just one of those things where green is... Um, kind of this threatening color in there even so much as like the car in the beginning when like his parents are making a child the old-fashioned way i mean it's dangerous for the world that he's entering into so i just thought that was interesting how green not red kind of indicated danger Hmm. that's an interesting point i definitely noticed the ice blue quite a bit and kind of the lab sterile settings but i i honestly didn't catch on to that green theme that would that's a great point. Now, there are moments of natural green, like there'll be in the middle of the uh, um, Gattaca space complex, and like Irene will walk up and there's some plants behind her, and there are not a lot of plants shown in the film of this, um, or as uh, Vincent is talking to Jerome in their house, out the window, they'll frame kind of natural elements, very isolated, 
around their main characters. So it's uh, they're there, but again, it's showing you that that nature is within these characters who, by the way, I guess are also flawed a little bit. And another really nice thing that they do in this, there's a lot of shots of escalator stairs, elevators, lifts, ramps, and things like that. And that shows the upward mobility that Vincent is trying to exceed what was expected of him. And the most prominent one was the amazing spiral staircase at Jerome and Vincent's house that is also a DNA kind of illusion because it's got a helix kind of form. Yeah, that's a good point. Visually strong, both in terms of the style and the cinematography, like a lot of the points that Chad was talking about from big to small, as well as contextual, strong decisions and uh, use of color in this movie. And I mean, I've seen this movie enough times that I'm starting to pick up on some of this stuff, but not all movies are made with such deliberate style. I'm actually disappointed that Andrew Nichol hasn't, you know, grown and exceeded. It's uh, strange that he's peaked so early, so... Now, in terms of the actual physical environment, I'm a huge fan. And I've got I've got a couple of architectural notes to add on this one. But Brian, what did you take about the look and feel of the world of Gattaca? I think that if you hadn't had if you had not gone with the architectural pieces he used, given the um, severely limited, really outdoor sequences that you really get to see the world around you, I think that they definitely use architecture and the lack of vegetation to convey the fact that this is happening in the future. Yeah, it's fascinating, though, because a lot of the buildings, and Russell, I'm sure you actually know the buildings or are familiar with the style, but a lot of those buildings are old, and it was made to be futuristic, but they're old buildings. You're absolutely right, Chad, because, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to architectural cliff notes here gattaca space center that you see featured both outside and inside is uh, the marin county civic center which is out in california in san rafael it is a 1960 frank lloyd wright building and uh i got all giddy watching how much they put this in there (laughs) um heavy frank lloyd wright presence and then also highly acclaimed and awarded uh, architect antoine predock uh, his CLA building on the campus of California Polytechnic in P- Pomona, uh, that is where Jerome and Vincent's house live. And um, so that complex where you have this very triangular form and that framework that extends upward into the sky with the exposed structure. And it's kind of got this very massive stone facade with these punched openings and the ramps that uh, you see Irene and Vincent talking on, on the outside. The interesting set of exterior spaces are uh, is a real place, and that was uh, a 1993 project by Antoine Predock. And another older one, as I mentioned, the two massive arches that are seen Irene and Vincent when they're talking, that's the Sepulveda Dam in Los Angeles, and that was even older. That was built in 1930 in Los Angeles. So, And there's uh, some modern buildings that they shoot in front of in a parking lot of the Otis College of Art and Design. So, And the solar plant mirrors are an actual place as well, so... Um, it's just they they picked wonderful locations and somebody with a real eye did a great job like you said chad in a way they went backwards and got older places but in a way they were more forward thinking and more modern some of the stuff from the 50s was so forward thinking it was a time of looking to the future so much and the 60s some of those things today actually seem more modern than some of more recent designs so it was a great way to get you out of the 90s context that you're the viewer is in but i think in doing so is it's going to age the movie really well because it does feel like it's in the future because it was forward thinking for when it was made yep 
I'm sitting there watching and saying, building, shiny, pointy, <laughs> <laughs> past the dunce cap. Um, but, I mean, okay, it does the same thing with the clothes, though, too. I mean, did you guys notice that a lot of this is going to be from a mid-century style and clothing? I mean, you've got, like, detectives wearing hats and the type of coats and stuff they're wearing. They're not quite as baggy, but, I mean... They're in retro style of suits. I mean, even their Apple watches are kind of like this Dick Tracy watch to some degree. So it's kind of going back to a more mid-century version of what is modern. But in a way, we haven't gotten to that sleek uh, modern future. And that's a great way of setting the future without making such a bold claim to enter the Back to the Future 2 realm where you're just taking a stab at it and everything's wrong in in 10 years. Still want my hoverboard. Yeah, I'll bring this up too, just because I always liked it. I always liked the blending of past and present that they uh, achieved with uh, Will Smith's iRobot. Yeah, it felt very realistic. Hmm. Yeah, that's another one for me to where they had they had enough of the look at how souped up future it is to to intermix with a little bit of old world. And I think that's one thing a lot of movies get wrong, where they take a stab at just straight up future. Like, everything that you ever know and are used to is gone. It's all you know replaced by something, ooh, techie. And, and movies that don't make that stretch, I think, hold up better in the long run. Yeah. Now, Chad, did you find that the style of, like, I mean, all the people in Gattaca are wearing this navy blue kind of uniform, so to speak. Like, all the men have these very nice suits, and the dresses that the women are wearing are very, you know very much uniform and stuff like that. This is kind of a retro style. Like, this looks like people walking into a 50s place of work. Yeah, I agree. I I wanted more color. I understand why they did what they did. It's continuing in this sterile, uniform, dystopian future, but it still would have been nice. We're trying to underscore that these perfected human beings are still human beings and they still have their own personalities and parents it would have been nice to see some of that personality come out through some reds or oranges or anything like that Uh uh-huh the cars too vincent's driving a 96 uh sorry uh a 63 studebaker avanti and vincent explains from the beginning of the film that he was conceived in the riviera not the french riviera but the detroit uh variety and he his parents are again creating him or uh, consummating their love in a seventy one Buick Riviera. So uh, it's again to Brian's point. This is old cars, old wardrobe, older buildings, and in a way, it still feels wildly modern. They're familiar things, but they're forward looking familiar things, and they're also not. While I'm very familiar with the Marion County Civic Center as an architect, I'm willing to bet most people don't know what an awesome, cool building that is unless you happen to live in San Rafael. I did not. Again, pointy, shiny building. (laughs) (laughs) So, lighting of Jerome's home was also deeply emotional, too. I, I really, again, we talked about color, cinematography, lighting was really great in this movie it made it so intense it made it show the focus of the faces particularly on vincent's face when uh isolated moments of light go over him and then you're in this very dark room otherwise or again there's framed moments of windows that kind of frame the characters and and just the lighting is another one of those 
excellent level filmmaking things that reinforce that feeling that I mean Chad said it that feeling is there they don't want you to feel easy and they've done it with every script every page in the playbook they can do it with Brian you mentioned earlier there was some special effects that weren't working for you um no not really I mean obviously there's some pieces where like the digit uh technology how they well, how they digitize like the the space shuttles going up and stuff like there's parts of this that have aged because it's an older movie. You know, we're we're now uh, you know 23 years past uh, its its release date, so clearly they've they've made technological advancements. But I also think that how the director filmed this left so few avenues for this to age poorly that you really have to nitpick to find them. I agree. I mean, Apple Watches didn't turn out quite like Dick Tracy watches, but again, it's not such a distraction either because it still functions. It doesn't look like... It's not like they're going over to the fax machine going like, the message is coming in. Right. (laughs) No, we can't do that. Mom's on the other line. We can't access the (laughs) internet. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Chad, any other thoughts on the... uh, I guess it's not really an effects-driven movie, but I mean, in terms of the how all this stuff will age Uh, the opening title card was gorgeous yeah i thought the opening title sequence uh, with the special effects was gorgeous i really enjoyed that but you're right it there weren't a whole lot of uh, practical or special effects implemented here yeah yeah if you think about it i mean it's a it's playing from a, a palette of the drama side of things more than it is from the science fiction's uh, in terms of its direction, because there aren't a lot of science fi- or, uh, science or uh, special effects pieces. Uh, you know, the, the flames of the space shuttle as it take, takes off was really awesome, and I like how they paralleled that as, unfortunately, Jerome's committing suicide at the end, you know, which was a, a bittersweet conclusion to the movie. That is the second saddest uh, incinerator scene in cinema movie history. Darn you, Toy Story 3. Okay, okay. I was going to say. <laughs> this is why I stopped after Toy Story 2. Oh, 3 is excellent. You should. 3 is excellent. You should. Yeah. 3 is very, very sad. Um, Incredible. Yeah, that's sad. why I still haven't watched Up all the way through. Yep. Russell has no heart. It's a good movie. I mean, honestly, that movie finishes out really happy. I don't know. D- don't don't be deterred by that. It's a, it's a happy movie. So both of those are still happy movies. Um, <laughs> holding hands in a furnace, man. Now Jerome, on the other hand, that's there's not a lot to be happy there. His he uh, he never felt like he had uh, his potential was never fully used beyond helping somebody else fulfill their dream, and uh, that was the most that he could have. There was a, there was a weight to that. I, I kind of knew even the first time I watched, it, I was kind of like he's not going to be around. He's talking about traveling, and I'm sitting there going like, uh, I, I I don't think I like where this is going. Uh. <laughs> And I was right. I felt, I felt like he kind of accepted it, though. He he was at peace. In a um, way, it was here. liberating. You're right. For him. He pulls out his medal, and it, it seemed to me that he finally accepted You know, my place wasn't on the first place podium. Eh, as he's also incinerating himself, you see they, they really focused the camera at a low perspective angle on the wheelchair that he left behind as he climbed into the furnace, meaning he's leaving that wheelchair behind and... You know, as he goes to heaven, you know, you don't need a wheelchair anymore. And I think one of the, the other telling pieces of this is that I you, you don't get any religion in this movie at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that was a deliberate choice. It's a very religiously sterile film. Yeah, there is no no hope or anything, which would have been interesting to in- introduce religion since they were going to call it the eighth day. I'll cite that everything that happened after the seventh day was mostly bad. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the book. It didn't go well. <laughs> it was all downhill from there. <laughs> uh. I don't know how long it took to go downhill, but uh, it was in the first book. This movie has a wonderful soundtrack. Brian, what do you think about the mu- the music? You know, I haven't really thought too much about it outside of the fact that it just accompanies and carries the movie well. Yeah, what about you, Chad? I I like the accompaniment, but once again, they they went kind of thematic. I'm going to butcher whatever language this is, but there's a song called uh, Nuages, New Ages. I don't know how to pronounce that, but the the meaning of that song, the meaning of that title is clouds. Okay, yeah. I mean, I see why it gets a Golden Globe for Best Original Score, because it's uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it, it, it's distinct. I, I, it's something I can remember later. It's not the happiest of music, but I mean, to Brian's point, that accompanies what the emotion of it is, and that's just another level of how they took this to make you feel that. It's, it's foreboding. Uh, it's tense at times uh, as you just have this feeling of like man i hope vincent's not uncovered i hope he's not discovered that's a prevailing feeling throughout this movie of just man i hope his skin cells or whatever aren't discovered and anything that every attention to the detail could blow his whole cover and his whole dream and i don't even know does that get you up in jail they never really fully established that at this point but the consequences are certainly bad for sure for vincent and the music definitely takes you through all of that Indeed. Yeah, I have to imagine the consequences were death. I mean, that's what I pictured. Like, when they find this dude, they're just going to purge him. Well, seems, he, like, he, seems like what they do. He's getting kind of, uh, not framed for murder, but wrongfully accused of murder. So I'm pretty sure that, at a minimum, takes you to jail for most of your life. Yeah. Great score from uh, Michael Neiman was the uh, name of the composer on that one. So he, he did a great job on that. Good job, Michael. Yeah. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Superlatives. You ready? Absolutely. MVP, Brian. My MVP is going to be Jude Law. I really like his self-loathing in this movie. I think that whether he's talking or not, you get the the level of hell this guy is in. And I I really enjoyed his performance in this. Wow, yeah, great job. Jude Law with a... uh, with a full full uh, hairline at this point in his career, so uh, uh, <laughs> hey, Chad, let's not discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Gattaca, they can fix that. No, <laughs> Chad MVP. Yeah, it's interesting because we haven't spent a lot of time talking about him. We've been mostly been talking about Ethan Hawke, but I'm going with Jude Law as well. I really enjoyed Eugene's wit, and his sorrow made the whole story really compelling. Like Vincent's sorrow I could get, but having that juxtaposition of here's someone that's supposed to be perfect really brought it home for me. Nice choices, nice choices. I'm going to go for Andrew Nichol. I mean, the guy wrote the story and he directed it, and as you can tell, I'm a huge fan of the direction of this movie, and I think that it is a singular vision, and he did a fantastic job of building this world and immersing us in it and making such a thoughtful movie for sure so uh andrew nickel gets my mvp no disrespect to law or ethan hawk by the way 
No, that's a great choice. Best supporting actor, Brian. Uh, my supporting actor, you know, I, at first I was going to go with Alan Arkin in this because I really do like his character, but I'm actually going to go with Xander Berkeley. Darn you, uh, Fry. <laughs> uh, sorry. I, I, I was really as a coin toss, but I just like him so much in this movie. I, I always look forward to the testing times where he has to go see him. I'm like, oh, this interaction is going to be great. Yeah, it's what I looked forward to the most throughout the movie and especially the end his final speech and if anyone has that quote i'm just going to leave it out but his final speech to to vincent was just what sealed the deal for me i thought it was really touching yeah agreed i liked how that he knew the whole time and was not only okay with it or but he admired him for it and kind of looked the other way there's a fun outtake with him being there with all these peacups sitting around and, uh, you know, something I think kind of goes wrong with the filming. And so uh, he uh, kind of being silly just picks up one of the peacups and drinks it and then walks off and people are laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Apple juice. Yeah. Um. I'll tell you one thing, just since we're talking about this real quick, the one thing that I always kind of considered after, uh, uh, especially after my rewatch on this is if they ever did try to make a sequel to this, It'd be interesting if Jerome's character or uh, Vincent's character is leading one of these facilities and Xander's child is someone up to be hired. Hmm. I'd like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who is your best supporting actor? Russell? My best supporting actor is Uma Thurman. I think that she did a great job of having the chemistry with Ethan Hawke. She went from being on this mission and she had a transformation of coming to find who Vincent is without discovering his identity first. She liked that she wasn't judged from him and that made her feel a connection to him. She liked his determination and all of the things that are him before she found out that he had a secret to hide. And once she found that while conflicted, while hurt uh, to some degree, she absolutely still admired him and loved him for it so and uh, i like that scene where she talked about you couldn't see on the freeway could you and uh mary who's got horrible vision uh without her glasses said that this is one of the most accurate depictions of what it's like when you don't have your glasses for her and uh so um it, it was i was like man it can't be that bad is it she goes it most certainly is just can't see the big e on the chart <laughs> really <laughs> well uh at any rate, I just thought that uh, she did a great job and she had the right chemistry with Ethan to make this. In a world that, like Chad said, is by the numbers, very prejudiced and cold, especially his parents didn't have this loving relationship with him. She was the warmth that this movie had that you kind of need. Now, Hidden Jim, Chad, do you want to go first since Brian's taking all your answers? I, I do. <laughs> Stop copying me, sir. <laughs> Gabrielle Reese. She was a Gattaca trainer, and she's already an amazing volleyball player and great athletic specimen. And I thought it was a great choice as far as who you would get as a prototype for what a future perfect human would look like. It's just cool to get a volleyball player to do that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, she's got an extensive modeling career behind her as well. So, uh, by the way, you stole mine as well. Uh, but uh, you're right, a six foot three. Uh, athletic specimen is a great choice. Brian, who's your head and gym? 
So my hidden gem is going to be Ernest Borgnine as Caesar. I always loved him from you know, movies like Basketball and stuff. It was kind of fun to see him in a part like this where, you know, at first he doesn't believe him, but then later on you kind of get the idea that he recognizes him. It's just a nice little toss in. Yeah, great job from Ernest Borgnine there. More on him later. Now recast, Brian. So I would recast uh, Blair Underwood. He plays the geneticist that they're talking to in the very beginning when creating Anton. And I just would really like to see a legit scientist, like someone famous and well-known in this part, like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye. Okay. That's interesting, yeah. Just as a funny little... Just a funny little, like, pop-in, just to be like, oh, yeah, he was in Gattaca. Yeah. I think Bill and I would be too uh, um, cheerful and optimistic. But, yeah, I could see, I could see something like you don't that. Think Bill, you don't think Bill and I could be a downer or, or more clinical? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, what about you, Chad? Who's your recast? I'm going to recast Lauren Dean, who plays Anton. I want to recast that with Ed Norton. I feel like you get a little more familial connection with Edward Norton and Ethan Hawke, I think they'd look closer to related. Okay. That's my main reason. Nothing against Lauren Dean's acting. I had a hard time recasting. It's just so good. So I'm, I did too. My pick is a have to kind of thing. Instead of Alan Arkin, who kind of has a humorous tint to what he's doing. I might go with uh, William H. Macy in the role for detective Mm. Hugo. But again, I like Alan Arkin. So no disrespect to him either. It's just, this is you got to play the game. Um, it, 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 I think it'd be a little softer with uh, Macy. Like Alan Arkin, Arkin's pretty hard hitting. He is, and like he's submissive to the younger but higher. Because uh, like, again, Vincent's brother Anton has a higher genetic potential. So even though this guy's got tons of experience and stuff like that, he's below him on the ladder. So that that relationship is there, and I think William H Macy might have some of those that softer side that you were talking about of like, I've got, I've got the right idea, but then like kind of backing off and they're like, okay. Um, I loved Alan Arkin in this too. So great cast. When you have that much trouble, you got a good cast. Best shot Mm -hmm. though, Brian. Uh, My best shot was him crossing the street blind. I thought that was just one of my favorite way, just how they shot back and forth from just across the street Blurry vision, just across the street, clear, blurry vision. Yeah, that was, it was, uh, again, that was helpful for me as someone who uh, has good eyesight to see what it's like to not have glasses. That was an interesting comment that Mary had made to me as well. Best shot for you, Chad. During the concert scene, there's this beautiful overhead shot with a piano illuminated in the center, and there's a ring with this black and white with splashes of brown patterns inside it and a bouquet of flowers beside the piano. They're all encircled by these people dressed to the nines. It's it's gorgeous. Nice. I I almost picked the scene at the Sepulveda Dam where uh, Vincent and Irene are. So that's my runner-up, but I have to go with, to me, the what captures this movie is when Vincent's still a janitor, he looks up through the skylights of the Marin County Civic Center. A little bit of Frank Lloyd Wright always helps. And uh, he looks up through that skylight at the rocket taking off and, uh, you know, that, that shows his determination and his drive. And if I were to take one image of the movie, it would be that. He always looks up. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, now, best scene of the movie, Brian. Uh, my best scene is uh, the Jerome, Irene, Vincent, when they all meet, when he has to climb up the stairs without his wheelchair and get set up. And 
Irene really realizes that they're not the same person and Anton's like, this is not who I expected to be here. Like that whole, the chemistry in that scene that made it like awkward and interesting and suspenseful all at once is just really cool. Mm-hmm. That's mine as well. It, to me, it's the climax for sure. What about you, Chad? I really enjoyed the contrast when Vin- Vincent is getting ready to board the ship and Eugene's climbing into the incinerator. There was just a great contrast and you even see uh, there are two doors. It's almost like a yin and a yang. One's open and one's closed for Vincent for his new future. So it it felt both triumphant and sad at the same time. I really enjoyed that. Now it's a great choice. And change one thing, Brian. I had a really, really difficult time thinking about what I would change in this. And because you know, we've discussed it a couple times where the parallels on on the the main character's ascension and how it kind of pulls the movie along in a parallel. I think that if I really had to change something, I am curious about more of the world, whether it would be a cityscape or really just anything. It is, it's so stark in additional scenic footage that it makes me wonder like, is is there still an, a world out there? Is it just this little town with you know, yeah, two dozen people in it? Like, what's what's going on outside? And and I understand why they did it, and that's fine. But it still leaves me wanting that little something more. No, it would be an interesting world to walk around in for sure. What about you, Chad? What's your change? One thing. I could have done without the final swimming scene. Oh, really? I, oh, no. No, no, I, no. I know. This this may oh, fall no. into hot take territory, but I don't think I need Vincent to be superior to Anton. I just want him to prove that he's good oh, enough. Oh, but it's so. why. But, yeah, that, oh, that, but that's, that's why he was better. It, it was the cycle of, like, you know, like, he even said at the beginning that was the thing that changed everything. And at the end, his brother needed that to see that Vincent's determination had driven him to become this physical specimen that would enable him to become an astronaut and that he had learned everything. And so he had overcome any mental and physical barriers to become this, you know, high potential human being. He exceeded his potential. So, oh man, it's your pick and we we both respect it, but we don't respect it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. My change one thing is actually the deleted scene I didn't tell you about. There's one of them that's quite beautiful, and when Vincent is Jerome, he returns to the locker rooms, and Fry says there's a sense that you know his former boss Caesar knows and is taking his garbage out and kind of maybe covering up for him and, you know, and kind of knows. Well, this scene would have confirmed that. It's a scene where Jerome, or Vincent, is about to go to space, and he comes down to see his friend Caesar, and, uh, you know, they talk he's saying like hey when you go up there start cleaning up the place for me why don't you and it's uh there's a there's a kinship that they share he's like why are you back down here he goes i guess i just didn't learn and um he said i left some trash for you in your locker when he leaves he opens it up and it's his old telescope that he used to look up at the sky with and uh, as if to say i won't need this because i get to go up there and he gave it to his friend who has known this whole time and has supported him in it. So it was a very touching scene, and I would have liked to have seen that. In the same way that the inspector has kind of known this whole time, uh, because uh, right-handed guys don't hold it with their left hand when they're peeing. Uh, that was, that was <laughs> Xander. Yeah. That wasn't the inspector. 
Oh, sorry. I, well, I meant the uh, his job was to test. Sorry, the tester. I don't. That line did not resonate with me. I absolutely use my left hand. Really? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there you go. If you'd like me to go back and change a different thing, that line was silly. I like that better then. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I want to keep that deleted scene though. Best quote though. Brian. It, it was actually from the swimming scene when he's like, you want to know how I'm doing it? It's because I never saved anything for the swim back. Yes. Like that, that is, it's one of the most chilling quotes about this movie. It's actually one of the few quotes that I could have done before rewatching it just because the way that sinks home as like, I, I, I'm given this everything I have to get where I want to go not just so I can go back to where I was. Oh, I'm with you. It's it's a great one. Chad, best quote for you. From Jude Law, I get the better end of the deal. I only lent you my body. You lent me your dream. Oh, that was... Yeah, that was Yeah, good. that was... That's this movie in a nutshell. That, that probably would have been mine as well, and I'm going to have to have a runner-up because those are both really high up for me, and um, I just I did like that, how Vincent said, I don't know how I can thank you, and Jerome followed it up with that, as Chad said. So Great one. I'm going to go with uh, Sorry, the Wind Caught It, as uh, Uma Thurman lets go of Vincent's hair. As if to say, <laughs> I, know, I know all there, I need to know just as much as you said earlier. You know all that you need to know without me. And she's not going to take it to the genetics testing center, which everybody does. If you get kissed, you go to a genetics testing center and they see what the person is and whether you want to actually be with them or not. So and that's how the society works. Even love works by potential. And they're just going to let it play out because they admire each other for who they are as people. And again, that was beautiful. So, But uh, I love your guys' picks as well. So it's uh, time to give this rating movie a rating on a five-star scale. Bryant, what would you rate Katika? I'm going to give this one a solid four stars. Really? You've, yeah. Uh, yeah, you've always gone to bat harder for this one. What keeps it from going into the 4.5 or 5 star range? Well, I'm, again, making an effort not to go decimal places. But um, I, I feel like if I go out and give every movie that I, I do love of a five star rating, it deludes the ones that might be a six. Oh, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're playing hard to get, and also uh, he's uh, he's fighting this decimal system. All of a sudden, it's uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is that all of a sudden? I've been doing this for months. Um, Go back. Yeah. Here, here, this is for the listeners because I, I can't do this research. Uh, find the last time I used a, a decimal in my rating. Uh, how to lose a guy in ten days? <laughs> was it really? Uh, I don't know if that's the last one, but I know that was a two and a half from you. I actually right. can pull that up because I keep track of these things. So you definitely didn't oh, do it. You did he's it. got it. You didn't do it in 2020. Uh, 20, <laughs> uh, Braveheart on August 22nd of ni- 2019. Wow. Okay. Okay. So How many? How many have I given a decimal to? Let's not go into all that right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just curious. Uh, summon the statistician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring forth the statistics. This is, yeah, I was going to say, oh. this is really good listening here. <laughs> Join us as we do analytics on a podcast. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, Chad, what would you give this movie on a five star scale with half star intervals? I promise I'm not doing this despite Brian, but four <laughs> and a half. <laughs> uh, 
Somehow that feels more so, appropriate than four. <laughs> can, can, can I just say that like the Electoral College, I get my revenge on uh, your end rankings? You do. Fair enough. You do. You do. Uh, that, 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 I'm glad we don't go by average star rating for that reason. So uh, <laughs> th- that is a correcting factor. And then for me, I'm going to go with five stars. If you couldn't tell, I've been gushing about this movie the whole time. I, ha- I can't find anything I want to change. I want to even put the deleted scenes back into it. I can't change the cast. And I love the story. It's the kind of thing that, you know, even when I haven't watched the movie, I sometimes just find myself sitting in traffic, kind of sitting there thinking, it's like, yeah, that world that they created in Gattaca, what a wild thing that would have been like. And what, like, like Fry said, like, what else is this world like? And my head really starts to think about it. And it touches you, like Chad said, and emotionally of, you know, I wouldn't make the cut. I'd be a janitor in this world. And, um, you know, that determination and that strive, that willpower, it's about an individual breaking the system. And I love that rebellious nature. So five stars for me. And it's uh, I will pick up the role of what Brian did for me. And I, I have recommended this movie to many people since then. So four or four and a half to five. You guys did that on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Chad, you ready to help pick a movie for next time? I'm ready. Let's do a goofy comedy. Let's take a visit from the great Adam Sandler and do an Adam Sandler movie. So option number one from 1995, Billy Madison. In order to inherit his fed-up father's hotel empire, an immature, lazy man must repeat grades 1 through 12 all over again. Option number two. From 1996, Happy Gilmore. A rejected hockey player puts his skills to the golf course to save his grandmother's house. And option number three, Big Daddy from 1999. A lazy school grad adopts a kid to impress his girlfriend, but everything does not go as planned, and he becomes an unlikely foster father. Happy Gilmore is the only one that doesn't say a lazy fill-in-the-blank, so let's go with that one. An angry fill-in-the-blank. (laughs) (laughs) all right great choice wilton so next time we'll do happy gilmore brian thank you hey no problem man and chad thank you anytime and thank you all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you so subscribe rate and review to us on itunes spotify stitcher google play wherever you get your podcast those ratings and reviews help us make the show better as well as they help promote the show Give us a like on Facebook. We'd love to interact with you guys there. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And for those of you who want to support the show, uh, you know, providing a podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. And uh, any contribution is appreciated, and it uh, goes towards making the show better 100%, not in our pockets. So we'll put that back to work for you guys. So thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian? Isn't it strange to create something that hates you?